Welcome to Journals of Self-Discovery. Hello and welcome to this month's edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. It's been a couple months since our last episode, and I just wanted to thank all of you who've purchased my book over the last couple months. And also to encourage you to please leave a review on Amazon if you haven't already. Leaving a review is really helpful to other people who are thinking about making a purchase. So all you have to do is go to the Your Order page on Amazon. You find the book, and then you click Write a Product Review. If you haven't read the book, please check it out. It's called Subtraction, The Simple Math of Enlightenment. And as one Amazon reviewer said, it's a true story of spiritual journey packed with wisdom. I hate writing reviews, so I'll keep it simple. Highly recommend it. Also of note, the TAT Foundation August Workshop will be here before you know what happened. Beyond Imagination is the title, and it will feature Jenny Clark, Norio Kushi, and Sean Pethel. All of these are people it would be worth your time to meet. And that will happen August 17th through the 19th. And you can check out tatfoundation.org and look for the banner on the front page. So there you have it in terms of the marketing for this month. Now I have one of my favorite poets as a guest. I've read several of Patty Ann Rogers' poems at TAT meetings and retreats. And I think that they're an aid to deepening the atmosphere or calling forth a mood of profundity. I hope you find the same effect in our interview, which begins with Patty Ann reading several poems that she chose just for this audience. I'm going to read a first poem that's titled Achieving Perspective. Um, maybe many of you are familiar with a sentence from by Walt Whitman. I hear and behold God in every object, yet understand God not in the least. That's something I keep in mind because uh, that's the experience I'm having. I see and hear God in everything, but understand nothing about it, nothing about God. Anyway, uh, so some of my poems are focused on um what does seem particularly miraculous or amazing to me, and um, this poem is about one of those things. Achieving Perspective Straight up away from this road, away from the fitted particles of frost coating the hull of each chickpea, and the stiff archer bug making its way in the morning dark, toe hair, by toe hair up the stem of the trillium straight up through the sky above this road right now the galaxies of the cygnus a cluster are colliding with each other in a massive swarm of interpenetrating and exploding catastrophes i try to remember that and even in the gold and purple pretense of evening I make myself remember that it would take 40,000 years full of gathering into leaf and dropping, full of pulp splitting and the hard wrinkling of seed, 
of the rising up of wood fibers and the disintegration of forests, of this lake disappearing completely in the bodies of toad slush and duckweed rock, 40,000 years and the fastest thing we own to reach the one star nearest to us. And when you speak to me like this, I try to remember that the wood and cement walls of this room are being swept away now, molecule by molecule, in a slow and steady wind, and nothing at all separates our bodies from the vast emptiness expanding. And I know we are sitting in our chairs, discoursing in the middle of the blackness of space. And when you look at me, I try to recall that at this moment, somewhere millions of miles beyond the dimness of the sun, the comet Bela, speeding in its rocks and ices, is just beginning to enter the widest arc of its elliptical turn. The next poem is titled, In Addition to Faith, Hope, and Charity. This is a poem I wrote um, because I like to try to make a perfect poem and then assume that it proves something. In addition to faith, hope, and charity, I'm, assure, I'm sure there's a God in favor of drums. Consider their pervasiveness, the thump, thump, and slide of waves on a stretched tide of beach, the rising beat and slap of their crests against shore baffles, the wrapping of otters cracking mollusks with stones, woodpeckers beat banging, the beaver's whack of his tail paddle, the ape playing the bam of his own chest, the million tickering rolls of rain off the flat leaves and razor rims of the forest. And we know the noise of our own inventions, snare and kettle, bongo, conga, big bass, toy tin, timbles, tambourine, tom-tom. But the heart must be the most pervasive drum of all. Imagine hearing all together every tinny snare of every heartbeat in every jumping mouse and harvest mouse, sagebrush, vole, and leash shrew living across the prairie, and add to that cacophony the individual staccato tickings inside all gnat catchers, kingbirds, kestrels, rock doves, pine warblers crossing, crisscrossing each other in the sky, the sound of their beatings overlapping with the singular hammerings of the hearts of cougar, coyote, weasel, badger, pronghorn, the ponderous bass of the black bear, and on deserts, too, all the knackings, the flutterings, inside wart snakes, whiptails, racers and sidewinders, earless lizards, cactus owls, plus the clamors under sea, slow booming in the breasts of beluga and bowhead, uniform wrappings in a passing school of cod or bib, 
the fitterings of bat rays and needlefish. Imagine the earth carrying this continuous din, this multifarious festival of pulsing thuds, stutters, and drummings wheeling on and on across the universe. This must be proof of a power existing somewhere definitely in favor of such a racket. After living um, 29 years in Missouri, where I was almost constantly inside hardwood forests, under trees, um, we moved to Texas, outside of Houston. And that was the first time I'd actually been where I could see a wide, wide plain. We were out at the edge of the... Um, urban and suburban um, and I the first time I ever saw the moon actually rising out of the horizon and um, at night that night sky coming right down on the earth nothing between us and the sky and um, we lived across from a field and I knew there were mice in that field and um, so this is a poem about one particular mouse in the field across from our house. The title is Being Accomplished. Balancing on her haunches, the mouse can accomplish certain things with her hands. She can pull the hull from a barley seed in paper-like pieces the size of threads. She can turn and turn a crumb to create smaller motes the size of her mouse, mouth. She can burrow in sand and grasp one single crystal grain in both of her hands. A quarter of a dried pea can fill her palm. She can hold the earless, eyeless head of her furless baby and push it to her teat. The hollow of its mouth must feel like the invisible confluence sucking continually deep inside a pink flower. And the mouse is compelled to see everything. Her hand held up against the night sky can scarcely hide Venus or Polaris or even a corner of the crescent moon. It can cover only a fraction of the blue moth's wing. Its shadow could never bar or blot enough of the evening to matter. Imagine the mouse with her spider-sized hands holding to a branch of dead hawthorn in the middle of the winter field tonight. Picture the night pressing in around those hands, forced simply by their presence to fit its great black bulk exactly around every hair and every pin-like nail, forced to outline perfectly every needle-thin bone without crushing one, to carry its immensity right up to the precise boundary of flesh but no farther. Think how the heavy weight of infinity expanding outward 
in all directions forever is forced nevertheless to mold itself right here and now to every peculiarity of those appendages and even the mind capable of engulfing the night sky capable of enclosing infinity capable capable of surrounding itself inside any contemplation has been obliged for this moment to accommodate the least grasp of that mouse the dot of her knuckle the accomplishment of her slightest intent maybe some of you listening have had an experience that i have occasionally not often and never uh, anticipated and that is uh, to suddenly sense something near that is not my senses can't in, uh, detect um, and yet it's a presence of some sort and it it's not scary and it doesn't seem um, mystical it it seemed very natural actually um, so I kind of I, I've written a couple of three poems trying to evoke this feeling um, so this is one of those poems the title is the background beyond the background on an autumn afternoon perhaps selecting apples from a crate or examining pickled beets and onions in a jar or watching two honeybees at one red clover we stand unaware before a background of behest and sanctity or floating down a river through elm and cottonwood shadows past sandbar willows and lines of turtles on sunning logs over underwater thickets bottom beds of leaf roughage and mud we are all the while made finely distinct upon a more distant background of singularity anywhere we turn this background stays a domain for mortal and immortal for crystal grids for shifting furls of smoke for structure and fallibility for each nexus of sword and cross atop a barn roof a glossy green-tailed rooster with auburn feathers lifts his wings against a backdrop of dawn is it the passing moment of occupied event or the passing fact of barnyard morning that creates the impression of presence before this silk of elusive light behind light like a clear horizon at the edge of a wide field the background beyond the background of sky reveals most explicitly the figures of those that come before it elephant or ostrich or seed heavy grasses saint sow 
runt or sire, summer lightning, blowing ice, it achieves us all. Far, far beyond those far mountains of stone and cavern against which I am outlined now, there is another background, translucent, stolid, eloquent, still. Since I am sure of one thing, <laughs> that we are born ignorant and we will die ignorant, the world is a great, great mystery. And um, part of the pleasure of living is confronting that mystery. And uh, part of that confronting is questioning. This is a poem, and I do begin many of my poems but with a question. And this is one of those. And I, I ask our, myself, what is the greatest gift we're given out of the many gifts we're given when we're born? And uh, the title of the poem is The Greatest Grandeur. Some say it's the reptilian dance of the purple-tongued Sangoana, for there the magnificent translation of tenacity into bone and grace occurs. And some declare it to be an expansive desert, solid rust-orange rock like dusk captured on earth in stone, simply for the perfect contrast it provides to the blue-gray ridge of rain in the distant hills. Some claim the harmonics of shifting electron rings to be most rare, and some the complex motion of seven sandpipers bisecting the arcs and pitches of come and retreat over the mounting hayfield. Others for grandeur choose the terror of lightning peals on prairies or the tall collapsing cathedrals of stormy seas because there they feel dwarfed and appropriately helpless. Others select the serenity of that ceiling cellar of stars they see at night on placid lakes because there they feel assured and universally magnanimous. But it is the dark emptiness contained in every next moment that seems to me the most singularly glorious gift, that void which one is free to fill with processions of men bearing burning cedar knots or with parades of blue horses belled and ribboned and stepping sideways, with tumbling white-faced mimes or companies of black-robed choristers to fill simply with hammered silver teapots or kiln-dried crockery, tangerine and almond custards, polonaises, polkas, whittling sticks, wailing walls. That space, large enough to hold all invented blasphemies and pieties, 
10,000 definitions of God and more. Never fully filled. Never. At one point in my writing years, I wanted to honor every living creature that I could. Of course, that was not possible, but that's the kind of goal you want that you can never reach. So this poem arose out of that wish, and this is a poem about all, well, not, it is dedicated to all, let me say, all one-cell creatures. The title is Address the Archaeans, One-Cell Creatures. Although most are totally naked and too scant for even the slightest color, and although they have no voice that I've ever heard for cry or song, they are, nevertheless, more than mirage, more than hallucination, more than falsehood. They have confronted sulfuric boiling black sea bottoms and stayed, held on under ten tons of polar ice, established themselves in dense salts and acids, survived eating metal ions. They are more committed than oblivion, more prolific than stars. Far too ancient for scripture, each one bears in its one cell one text, the first wit of Alpha, the first jot of bearing, beneath the riling sun, the first nourishing of self. Too lavish for saints, too trifling for baptism, they have existed throughout never gaining girth enough to hold a firm hope of salvation. Too meager in heart for compassion, too lean for tears, less in substance than sacrifice. Not one has ever carried a cross anywhere, and not one of their trillions has ever been given a tombstone. I've never noticed a lessening of light in the ceasing of any one of them. They are more mutable than mere breathing and vanishing, more mysterious than resurrection, too minimal for death. You know, most poems that have lasted have not been, not had a single subject. Most poems that people repeat and want to reread are, uh, have uh, contained several subjects, all working at the same time, if they are masters of poetry. And um, I'm not saying I'm a master of poetry, but uh, I try to do that. I try to have several things taking place in a poem, and uh, this poem is one that I think where that happens a little bit. I hope so anyway. Uh, the title of this 
is hail spirit. A weaver, this spider. She plays her eight thin black legs and their needle-nail toes across the threads faster, more precisely than a harpist at concert can pluck the strings in pizzicato. Although blind at night, she nevertheless fastens a thread to a branch of choke cherry on one side of the path, links it to a limb of shining sumac opposite, latches the scaffold to ground stone and brace of rooted grasses, and the structure takes dimension. Skittering upside down across and around, she hooks the hooks, knots the widening spirals, the tightened radii, orbs and hubs, bridges and bridgeheads. We can never hear the music she makes as she plucks her silk strings with all the toes and spurs and tarsal tufts of her eight legs at once. She performs the reading of her soul. Oh, remember how vital her eyes, the eyes of her gut, eyes of her touch, gauging the tension, her eyes of gravity and balance, of purpose, steady eyes of reckoning. Don't miss the moment when she drops, a quick grasp, catches, swings forward again, an artiste. She expands the sky, her completed grid a gamble, a ploy played on the night. The silk is still, translucent and aerial, hanging in a glint of half-moon. The work is her heart, strung on its tethers, ravenous, abiding. Well, I wouldn't be a poet if I didn't have a few poems about death. So, I usually like to try to take, you know, Emily Dickinson says, write the poem at a slant. I like to take a new slant on uh, something that people use in a common way and maybe think of it in a slightly different way. The title of this poem is The Consequences of Death. You might previously have thought each death just a single loss. But when a plain gray titmouse dies, what plunges simultaneously and disappears too are all the oak juniper woodlands, the streamside cottonwoods, every elderberry bush, and high spring growth of sprouted oak once held inside its eye. And when a sugar pine splits, breaks to the ground, falling with its fiestas and commemorations of blue-green needles, long-winged seeds, the sweet resin of its heartwood, there's another collapse coincident a fast inward sinking and sucking back to nothing, 
of all those stars once kept in its core, those clusters of suns and shining dusts once resonant in the sky of its rigid bark and coned scales. We could hear the sound of that galactic collapse as well if we had the proper ears for it. And when a mountain sheep stumbles, plummets, catapulting, skull, pine, from cliffside to crumbling rock below, a like flame, shape of flame and intensity on a similar sharp ledge on the other side of the same moment out of our sense loses balance, goes blind. Because of these torn paper shreds of gold-lashed wings, this spangled fritillary's death, somewhere behind the night, a convinced declaration of air and matter and intentioned silenced speaks no longer of the God of its structure. You know, we use the word God to mean just about anything. And um, so I have written poems where I use the word God. And and sometimes um, I gave it some human characteristics and I used the pronoun he because I didn't want the poem to be interrupted by other kinds of concerns. And um, so maybe you'll go along with me on this one, uh, whether it's your thinking about the word God or not. But um, I hope you do. This is, the title of this is The Possible Suffering of a God During Creation. You know, it's my idea, because we live in a world that's in flux all the time, it's a dynamic living universe, uh, Earth that we see erupting in volcanoes, and things are changing all the time. It makes me think the creation's not finished. And so I took that view with this poem, The Possible Suffering of a God During Creation. It might be continuous, the despair he experiences over the imperfection of the unfinished, the weaving body of the imprisoned moonfish, for instance, whose invisible arms in the mid-waters of the deep sea are not yet free, or the velvet blue vervain whose grainy tongue will not move to speak, or the ear of the spitting spider still oblivious to sound. It might be pervasive, the anguish he feels over the falling away of everything that the duration of the creation must of necessity demand, maybe feeling the break of each and every russet-headed grass collapsing under winter ice, or feeling the split of each dried and brittle yellow wing of the sycamores that falls from the branch. Maybe he winces at each particle-by-particle disintegration of the limestone ledge into the crevasse 
and the resulting compulsion of the crevasse to rise grain by grain, obliterating itself. And maybe he suffers from the suffering inherent to the transitory, feeling grief himself for the grief of shattered beaches, disembodied bones and claws, twisted squid, piles of raped, ripped and tangled, uprooted turtles and rock crabs and Jonah crabs, sandbugs, seaweed and kelp. How can he stand to comprehend the hard, pitiful, unrelenting cycles of coitus, ovipositors, sperm and zygotes, the repeated unions and disillusions over and over, the constant tenacious burying and covering and hiding and nesting, the furious nurturing of eggs, the bright breaking forth and the inevitable cold blowing away. Think of the million, million dried stems of decaying dragonflies, the thousand, thousand leathery cavities of old toads, the mounds of cow's teeth, the tufts of torn fur, the contorted eyes, the broken feet, the rank bloated odors, the fecked brown-haired mildews that are the residue of his process. How can he tolerate knowing there is nothing else here on earth as bright and salty as blood spilled in the open? Maybe he wakes periodically at night, wiping away the tears he doesn't know he has cried in his sleep, not having had time yet to tell himself precisely how it is he must mourn, not having had time yet to elicit it, to elicit from his creation its invention of his own solace. That line from Walt Whitman about hearing and beholding God in every object, yet understanding God in not in the least. After a while, that makes me angry. <laughs> I think, why? Why can't I? And um, this poem arose kind of out of that mild anger and frustration, I guess. Um, the title of it is God Damn Theology. It was easier when you were a jonquil and I was a fingertip pressed at the juncture of your radiating petals and stiff stem. And it was not so difficult when I was a Persian guitar and you were the knee on which I lay, my neck held easily in your hand. But there were problems when you were two hundred years of years, twisted like taffy, twisted and looped like a dry bristlecone in dusty snow, and I was just a beginning sliver of clear tadpole breath in a whorl of waterweed. I didn't know what to say. And when I thought I knew your name, and I called it out loud many times, that's when you were a deaf sheaf of catacombed coral with more than one title and no tongue. 
I was whole, a burning ball of peach hanging from a branch. You were multiple, sparks struck from a hammer against rock. I split into a showering orbit of mayflies in the evening sun. You congealed into a seeded cow patty in the field. When the painted pony and I were galloping fast through rabid waves on the beach, there you were, a tiny spire of ship sailing off the edge of the sea. The night I woke in white, my body moon gray, you were curled, a black hump of quilt at the foot of my bed, dead asleep. And later, when you were falling rapidly, heavily, raindrops and pock drops and bullet marks, a mob in the mountain lake, I was precise, wing and talent, talon over the prairie, jackknifing and stabbing, lifting the mouse by her spine. When I was crying, crying and truly sorry, you were a spray of chartreuse and scarlet tinfoil confetti on my head. That's when I knew for certain it was going to be much more difficult than we'd ever imagined before. This is my last poem. Another one when I kind of examined the idea of God again in another way. And uh, it's the title of it is <clears throat> Inside God's Eye. As if his eye had no boundaries, at night all the heavens are visible there. The stars drift and hesitate inside that sphere like white seeds sinking in a still dark lake. Spirals of brilliance, they float silently and slowly deeper and deeper into the possible expansion of his acuity. And within that watching, illumination like the moon is uncovered petal by petal as a passing cloud clears the open white flowers of the shining summer plum. Inside God's eye, light spreads as afternoon spreads, accepting the complications of water burr and chestnut, the efforts of digger bee and cuckoo bee. Even the barest light gathers and concentrates there like a ray of morning, reaching the thinnest nerve of a fairy shrimp at the center of a pond. And like evening, light bends inside the walls of God's eye to make sky-wide globes of fuchsia and orange, violet-tipped branches and violet-tinged wings set against a red dusk. Lines from the tangle of daughter, bindweed, and honeysuckle, from the interweaving knot of seaweed and cones, patterns from the network of blowing shadow and flashing poplar, fill and define the inner surface moment of his retina. And we, we 
are the only point of reversal inside his eye, the only point of light that turns back on itself, and by that turning saves time from infinity and saves motion from obscurity. We are the vessel and the blood and the pulse he sees as he sees the eye watching the vision inside his eye in the perfect mirror held constantly before his face. First thing, I just wanted to thank you so much for doing that. I, uh, I mean, it felt like I was listening to a symphony in a way. No, that's a, a um, wonderful compliment. You know, you kind of, uh, a couple of times, you kind of gently guided me towards this idea of just let me read my poems, and uh, and that would be the best way to do this. And, and now I understand <laughs> why you didn't want me asking questions and so forth during the reading. Well, yeah, we could have done it. We could have done it that way. But the thing, the problem is, I can't say what I want to say any better than I say it in the poem. You know, if I try to speak in prose about the poetry, it, it's never right. So kind of leaves me dissatisfied. So anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I understand. Well, I was I was hoping that um, uh, perhaps steering away from commenting on the poetry, perhaps I could ask a few questions just just about you, perhaps, and your life as a poet. Okay. So I was um, I was curious if if you have a a spiritual practice like prayer or meditation or or really your your work your poetry is that spiritual practice it is in fact it's uh you know it's a uh i i wrote a little bit about this in a uh, essay book called the uh, my essay book called the dream of the marsh wren that uh creating um, the poems that were creating me. They were, you know, build, uh, building the soul, the soul, my soul, the one I wanted, the one I couldn't be all the time. Uh, and so I call that reciprocal creation. That it's, it's something that's circular while I'm uh, writing and focusing totally on the work and how it sounds. You know, you said that about uh, the, the poem sounding like a symphony, which is a wonderful compliment to a poet because that's the major difference between poetry and prose. One of the major differences that when I'm writing poetry, I'm singing. When I write prose, I'm talking. And there's all the difference in the world in what can you can, how you can use the language uh, to make the music you need, and sometimes the the music itself uh, 
can direct you to the words you need. Sometimes uh, I would leave a blank space not knowing what word would was right, but I would know where the accents and the unaccented syllables would fall in that right word. I mean, that is a, a kind of a, sounds mysterious, but it's got something to do with the body because it's the body that reacts so forcefully to music, you know, that enters the, the music they're listen, the body is listening to. It reacts to it. And uh, so I would pay, pay a lot of attention to how my body was reacting to what words, their cadence and their sounds were getting, I was placing on the paper or on the, now in the computer. So that um, I would have, when my children were old enough to go to school, I would ha I could have some pretty established for myself uh, a very, very quiet place, undisturbed. And um, I, I was friendly with my neighbors, but not so friendly that we dropped into each other's house without any preparation, you know, but without <laughs> contacting each other first. And so I would have a time and I, I would, it was a pretty total immersion in the work of writing the poem and what were many drafts of these poems would go through 30, 40 rewritings until it seemed right. The music was right. And I knew when the music was bumpy and uh, off kilter that that I had not gotten the right words so anyway that's the answer to it that's that those were my meditations and my prayers I used to call do you feel like in your many years as a poet have you have you made progress in terms of being able to connect to that feeling or have a clear bead on that feeling, or is it just as ephemeral as it always was? I went through a period, um, you know, I had, I had some definite things I wanted to do with poetry, uh, but some, but at the same time, and I would tell my students this, don't hold the reins too tight because don't try to guide everything that's happening because sometimes that mistake or that word that gets in there that you didn't even know the meaning of it will be the exact thing you need. And um, But I did, one of my goals that I wanted to do was that I... I there, when I start, first started writing, there was a pretty big break between science and art, thinking they had no relation with one another, that, uh, and they were even antagonistic a little bit, uh, an antagonistic relationship. But I, I, I was thrilled with science. I took an, that astro astronomy course as an undergraduate, and I was... Uh, just thrilled when, with what we knew about things so far 
from us and how it it, it had a sense for me a sense of liberation that we you know the human mind was able not to conquer it but to be to be aware of uh, what's going on around us in the universe and of course the Hubble Space Telescope just expanded that even more <laughs> that uh, what a what magnificent universe we live in and also down to the quantum area and it's always more mysterious uh the the scientists are the first ones to say we don't we don't know we're just trying to understand with our poor tools our math our clunky language uh to uh have some sense of where we are and what's going on around us with the lives of other beings and uh, the stars. And, you know, people used to be afraid when there was a meteor shower that God was punishing the earth or something. Anyway, um, they've just liberated us with these marvelous kind of stories about how an egg develops, what it what is happening with each step and how in the world did that come about you know over millions of years developing it's just in fact one of my favorite quotes is uh, from Stephen Jay Gould you know who was who's scientist and this was from his uh, book the structure of evolutionary theory and this is another thing not every scientist, all of us have a different religious experiences or experiences of the spirit. But many scientists are do have a sense of a religious experience when they're looking at something carefully enough, how it unfolds the story. And can I read this? You don't have to include it if you don't want to, but it's very short. Sure. Um, this actually one sentence, but a pretty long sentence. So this is uh, Stephen J. Gould speaking. And he starts it out. Something almost unspeakably holy. I don't know how else to say this. Underlines our discovery and confirmation of the actual details that made our world. And also in realms of contingency, assured the minutiae of its construction in the manner we know, and not in any one of a trillion other ways, nearly all of which would not have included the evolution of a scribe to record the beauty, the cruelty, the fascination, and the mystery. <laughs> so I, I I love that because you know what he's saying. You, you I'm sure you get the gist of this whole thing. That this the evolu- the way evolution has formed our world has resulted in a scribe that can record the beauty, the cruelty, the fascination, and the mystery. And that's what I wanted to do. It's exactly what I wanted to do. And because I felt that, I felt that. I felt the beauty, the cruelty, the fascination, and the mystery 
of where we live, knowing it's never going to, we're never going to understand it. It's like Whitman's seeing God and everything, but understanding God not in the least. We don't have the capability to do it. But anyway, that's one quote from a scientist. And he used the word holy. You know, his work, in his work, he sees the holy, the holiness of it. And uh, I don't know. Anyway, that's, that's one thing I wanted to do, definitely. But my work led other ways, too, that I didn't anticipate. And I let, I did let, let that go. And some of my poems are just purely celebrations. They're, you know, celebrations of life and, and songs. They're songs. And, you know, uh, Keats said, the poetry of earth is ceasing never. And that's the music of it, I think. And uh, I've wanted to express that music that is present in the earth and the universe and to find a, a place of habitation for our soul, our souls in poetry, through poetry. Anyway, I think that's a very long answer to you. To your wonderful question. No, I appreciate it very much. And in terms of your work today, do you do you have a sense of the the poetry that you're writing today? Is is there a, a particular goal for that? Is there something that that you're working on now that's that's different, say, than when you started thirty or forty years ago? That's another very good question. I guess, yes, you know, I, I am 78 years old. Mm-hmm. And I, my first book was published in 1981. And so, you know, I was working toward that in 1970, um, toward that first book. Because mm-hmm. people don't really have a, why would they have a knowledge of what it, uh, what kind of work goes into producing work in energy i mean too because you can't see it being done you can see a basketball player practicing you can see a violinist practicing you can see a dancer practicing you can hear a well you know a lot of human skills you you can visibly see what a person is doing to perfect them. But you don't see it when you, any kind of writer. You can even see an artist, painter, uh, gaining skills, learning, and a teacher teaching. And that's something you just don't um, perceive someone, if, unless you're involved in it yourself. You kind of miss the... Um, the effort, tiring, it can be tiring. And um, I, 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 it's, I've, I have 14 books. I don't think, I don't think my work is, uh, I don't think I have the same level of energy that it takes 
to be entirely original, you know, to say something you've never heard said before. And that's what poetry, one of the goals of poetry, is to expand the use of the language, I think, because, you know, we're just kind of like in a cave feeling our way along and trying to make a path and part of the light that helps us is language and so i you know the best poetry opens avenues of thought and does it uh, i'm talking about the best poets the poets that write poetry that is lasting or people go back to and and having have, have a place in the culture have affected the culture um, to to make our perceptions and our insights wider and deeper than before and um, so I don't know I it's hard for me I can't duplicate my past work. I can't do that. You know, that would be one shade lighter, I would say. One uh, wouldn't be nearly as, uh, no, well, I can't, do, I can't do it. And then often I will think, oh, I think I want to write about this. But I think, oh, I've already written about that. <laughs> or I've, you know, it kind of dampens my enthusiasm a little bit. And I, I, and like I said, it's tiring. I, I will continue writing because I have to. Um, it's, I have to do it. It's the way I identified part of who I am. I'm also a mother and a grandmother, and but one of the things that has been permanent since, since my teenage years has been the writing side of my life and. So I can't let it alone, and I just have to have some kind of faith that it might be of value to somebody. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I'll ever have another book. I just published this last one last year, and um, you know it takes it takes at least four or five years between books to get a collection of poems that. You know, you feel, I would feel confident publishing it, but I will write nevertheless, even if I don't publish. I mean, reading some of your earlier interviews and, and other people's opinion of your work, there's definitely the thought that you broke ground in terms of of this interface of of science and poetry. Do you feel like there are other poets who are who have stepped through that opening that that you made and are, are carrying on with that tradition i do i do, i get uh, things from books to people want an endorsement you know of their book and and so i i have some touch uh, in touch with some of those poets um i think that that some of them have gone in a slightly different direction than I did, but I think, and, and I do think there are more poems that uh, reference, give us a science reference in some way, in some tangential way sometimes, 
But, uh, you know, the, the bulk of the poetry written during the years I was writing and even into this time, people, readers of poetry, are looking for a, a little narrative, you know, a kind, some kind of a little story within the poem. Uh, and they are most, I think, when I first started writing, the, the poets were very self-absorbed. You know, it was confessional poetry and uh, a lot of the personal pronoun I appeared. And I know when my first book was published, it was published by Princeton University Press, and it was reviewed a couple of three places. One was in Poetry Magazine, or that journal, that old journal that's been around for a long time. Um, the reviewer, I wrote, in fact, the first poem I wrote where I thought that I had accomplished part of what I was aiming to do, because when I was in college, I was had a minor in zoology and worked with a professor who was doing research on frog eggs, and um, we went out at night one night and tagged bullfrogs in order to uh, come back and catch them and make see if they'd changed ponds or moved around. It was something about moving around, whether frogs were moving around. Anyway, I wrote a poem about the development of a frog egg and combined it with this experience of being out at night in the forest, not catching frogs, but just describing those eggs that were in the pond and what was happening to them and that what was going on around them in the forest. And um, anyway, that was in my first book. And this reviewer said, if I wanted to know all that, I'd read Scientific American. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I had succeeded in lifting, you know, combining those two things, the experience of the night in the forest. And and I did more than that. I, I described the moment, you can see it now in films, when the first heart be, be, begins. Hmm. And what happened? What happened in that second, in that moment, how everything, everything was different. Here was here was a life that was now sub subject to death. There hadn't been anything before that, but just a spray of blood vessels, but no beating heart. And I, I that still moves me. That thought of you know what, and I called it a whole language had been created or something. I, I can't remember now the exact words I used. And I, he missed that. The reviewer mm -hmm. missed that part of it. You know, that that it had, a, it. you know, I asked myself when I was writing this, what does this knowledge mean to the human soul? This knowledge of the development of this frog egg, which would eventually be a creature. And then that I tried to come to a, a, some kind of a, well, to me it was a, a mean, it had a meaning for the human soul, just like 
learning about the sky and the, how vast this universe is and how many different things are in it and how thing how they operate and what they what they how we can sense them to a certain degree with our five senses and anyway that was my first poem and I remember taking it to my husband and saying I think I finally learned how to do this and uh, I did follow the model of that poem how I because the poem has to be musical and it also has to tr evoke in the reader an emotional response so so that you know it can be felt that's one reason you can't verbalize it in or or you know it would be like trying to uh, explain music mm -hmm. you can't you have a wonderful reaction music can make people cry or laugh and yet you can't really explain why or how, but it does. And uh, so it's the same with poetry. The music helps that uh, evoking of, of a real response that's physical. It's in the body. The, uh, just like in the music is in the body. It's felt in the body. Have you done, uh, you've done a lot of interviews. I did go to your website and listen to uh, the review you recommended or the interview you recommended. Oh, with Jerry Winstrom. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a very interesting fellow. Huh? Definitely, to, to me, he's very much that, that nexus of spirituality and creativity which is always there, but people don't necessarily articulate it the way that, that he has. No, it's hard to do, even if you're the creator of it. You know, um, my brother was an artist, a visual artist, and uh, he, he had a, a teacher once who told him, you, and I don't know if this is generally held, by artists or teachers either he told him that any square any square one inch square of your canvas should be interesting mm -hmm. and I heard something similar about a poem which I do believe and which I have used in my writing that every line should be interesting and I, I even taken out of the poem it should have an interesting word or an interesting combination of words, or uh, it, all of the crafts of poetry uh, can be used, any of them, alliteration or assonance or, or hyperbole or, you know, lot, any of the, those terms, but it should be interesting in some way, and I tell my students that because if, you, if it's something that the reader can close their eyes and go to sleep on it shouldn't be in the poem hmm. i was curious one thing that uh i have done many times with people is uh those who are interested in in 
spiritual practices and so forth, I've encouraged them to find a, a creative practice because I really believe that, like, like you said, your work is your meditation or your prayer. And uh, I feel like the creative process is a different slant on the spiritual search or the spiritual inquiry. I was curious if there was any advice that that you might give a person who, who was interested in exploring that creative side of themselves, if there was any sort of general advice that that you give to your students, perhaps, that, that helps them get in touch with that side of themselves? Well, I would say, first of all, you have to be interested in what it is you're going to begin to be creative with. Maybe you're interested with pottery or something, but it has to be something, I think, that you have an interest in, a cur curiosity maybe, just curiosity about something. The f major fault I find with writers, poets, is they don't understand how hard the work is. <laughs> you know, they think, they come in as a novice thinking that somehow they're going to be inspired and all of this is because a, a poem that they read looks like it was easy to write and <laughs> because it take a lot of work to make that look easy. I mean, poets write about that. Yeats write, writes about that, how we stitch and stitch and stitch and the seam is uh, uh, invisible. You know, it, putting the poem together is uh, getting all, everything in, in the right place with the right rhythm and the right cadence and the right definition and, of the words and stuff. Anyway, they, they then they get frustrated because they think, well, I can't do this. You know, no, you can't. You Did you ever know of a, a person who wanted to play the piano, sit down and be frustrated they can't play Chopin or Beethoven? You know, you have to start and practice just exactly, just exactly like anybody learning to do something physically. You have to practice and you have to be able to to take suggestions from a coach or a teacher or someone who who has experience in whatever field it is that you're interested in. You know, even people, sports people, sports analogies are always available. But you know, people playing um, a sport will all, all the time refer to the fact that he knew he couldn't miss the basket. He got into some kind of a rhythm and knew that he was going to make three pointers for the next five minutes or whatever. But it, the, the rhythm of the body and what's going on, you, you have to make a connection. And it has to happen with uh, writing, too. Even though anybody looking at you thinks you're not do doing anything, you're staring out the window. But there's, there are mental things going on, and those mental things have to result in the body reacting. We make those deaf. We make that wrong dichotomy between the physical and the mental, but it's all one thing, and you can't 
you can be con concentrating and all of a sudden, you know, you're thinking, 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 and then something seems like it might be right and you try it. It might be and it might not be right. But anyway, it's hard to, unless you enjoy doing it. And when I, I messed around with poetry for several years and uh, finally decided when my sons were oh, two and five that I was going to actually work at this work at it because I'd had enough um, encouragement from some of my professors and that uh, made me feel like uh, I was uh, obligated to it to try because I had some kind of a talent and it could might be that I could develop it and I yearned for criticism. You know, I don't, I wanted someone who was experienced and knew poetry to look at my work and tell me where it was weak and where it was strong. And I did find that. I found it in a correspondence course from the University of Washington in Seattle. By the way, where are you on the West Coast? I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, close to Berkeley. Well, um, I... You know, David Wagner, there was a school, Theodore Retke was at the University of Washington in Seattle, and they had a very good uh, correspondence course. And I took every lesson that they had, every course in creative writing that I could. And that was a lot of poems. I wrote a lot of poems because each course had 32 lessons. So it, it was hundreds of poems. And... Uh, Eventually, and I, they, he introduced me to other poets that were students and um, also encouraged me to send poems to journals, you know, literary journals in at universities, and uh, I could read poems that, you know, other, that had been selected by the editors of these journals and make my own decisions about whether I wanted my poems to sound like theirs or learn from the poems that other young poets were writing. So it's a, it's a work, it's work. You have to want to do it. And one reason I wanted to do it was for my sons so that they would, if they had talents that could be developed, they would know that it had been done or that it, it was something to work at. And uh, also because it's the only thing I ever really did that I didn't get bored with. I never got bored with it. And so I think to look for those kinds of things uh, when they're selecting some field that they think they have an interest in and be sure to look for criticism you, from someone whose opinion you value I mean, your mom is always going to tell you, oh, yeah, this is great. You know? But you have to have an objective reader. It has to be, you know, somebody who partially understands what it is you're trying to do. And I, I had a couple of people that helped me a great deal that way. They didn't try to make me write like they were writing. They tried to understand what I was 
wanting to do and telling me what worked and what didn't work. You know, that's that's what a coach does for an athlete. It te- you know, you've got to do these exercises or you're never going to be able to leap over that goal or something. And he knows that from because he's been involved in the sport. Your you know your coach, he knows what works and what doesn't work. How you're going to tackle that guy the right way, or you're going to do it the wrong way, and it won't work. So, right, same thing with writing. So it's anyway. Those people are out there. There are more creative writing por- courses than there ever were in colleges and universities. I I haven't. Let's see, I haven't taught since the 90s in universities, uh, so I'm not sure exactly what is there now. But um, they were all taught by people who had published work and uh, knew not only their own work, they knew the history of poetry and what had touched people and what had not touched people and you know they they knew how how the english the history of poetry and the english language so anyway I, you 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 also don't want friends to look at your work because mm-hmm. they're going to maybe want to compliment you and not be truthful about something that's not working and so you have to get an objective person that's knowledgeable to help you and be determined that you want to succeed at it and know that you're not going to every poem you write is not going to be a home run it doesn't work that way the world doesn't work that way you have to be ready for lots of rejections Hmm. i was curious um let's say when you're when you're in the outdoors and and uh you know the the poem about the the mouse, for example. If if that was a if there is a feeling that arises in your body first, and words come to that, or if or if it's a an instance of well, I'll just ask that. Is is there a feeling in your body that gives rise to the words when you're writing? The uh, when I'm outside. I pay a lot of attention to how I feel, what the body is doing. And um, so a lot of my choices of subjects come from that. Something will, all of a sudden I'm, I'm really struck by some image out there. If it's a tree against the sky or it's a bird flying over yesterday, We've had owls, great horned owls in the trees behind our house. And one of them flew very close to the window, by the window. (laughs) Maybe that'll appear somewhere, but it was startling, you know, because that's a big bird. And the funny thing is the crow's trying to get rid of this bird, this owl. (laughs) And they're out there yelling and the crow's shouting and cawing and and the and the great horned owl can just sit right in with the trunk of the tree behind him and you it's really hard to spot him up there because he's exact same color as the trunk of the and same mottled color 
That's the trunk of the tree. Anyway, you know, uh, being outdoors to me and watching what's going on is very uplifting. It, it sustains me because everything out there is saying yes to life. Nothing gives up till the, you know, the last minute, the last drop of ice on the leaf. Uh, and that, that to me is energizing and beautiful. And so usually that's how I get started. I, I, and then I do come in and I have, uh, a lot of field guides and the, you know, the poets were not taking advantage of these field guides which are new vocabularies from beginning to end from cover to cover you know all the flowers all the parts of the flowers all the insects all the beetles everything and some of the little uh, i like the ottoman field guides because they have a little paragraph with the kind of scientific uh, detail of the creature about the habits of the creature and uh and then some of them are very lyrical and just like a little succinct piece of prose and um so if i you know i've seen this owl and i could probably find out some things about its habits that i didn't know and I like that. And uh, it's always interesting to me. <laughs> it's just interesting. <laughs> and I have this, I don't know, have a lot of books about animals. And the thing I like is being astonished over and over and over. I mean, you can't. <laughs> we, I was, uh, went with some writers to a university and we were to meet with um uh, people in the zoology department and biology and go to their classes and talk about writing and with them and find out what they were doing. And I was assigned to a scientist who studies mushrooms. <laughs> and I thought, oh, brother, this is not going to be very exciting. And she was taking her students out into a little piece of, uh, I think it was a vacant lot, actually. And, uh, I thought, oh, well, oh, my gosh, those students were so excited, and they had their uh, little baskets, and they, I found out that things I had never called mushrooms were mushrooms, <laughs> and they, uh, then this one boy came rushing back, they all came rushing back, look what so-and-so has found, look at this, what, where'd this come from, and she said, Jiminy crickets, and she had to follow them out there, and they were all so excited. <laughs> I got into the whole thing too, and uh, lo and behold, I found a book. It may have been there, or I may have ordered it. A great big book, a great big thick book of mushrooms of North America. Yeah, mushrooms of North America, <laughs> and here are all these things. And so the the closer you look. You know, it's like Blake's heaven in a grain of salt or some grain of sand. What is it he says? I don't know if it's heaven, but a, a, a universe in a 
grain of sand. The more, the more you look at it, the the more it multiplies. <laughs> so it was, it was an experience. I've had many of them like that, you know, thinking, oh, well, just a dandelion. No, not just a dandelion. <laughs> anyway, it's not just a mushroom. We've got all kinds of mushrooms. And, of course, these naturalists name everything. You know, they name everything, so they name all the kinds of clouds that are up in the sky, and they give them all names. And, of course, the stars all give them all names. And, you know, when the first of the Europeans were entering this hemisphere, they were seeing lots and lots of animals and plants and things that they'd never seen before. And uh, they're gathering those up and sending them back to England to be, you know, housed and classified and named. And I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I like it. It just lifts me up. It lifts me up to see people enjoying the natural world. I guess you call it the natural world. We, we have, we're part of it like we weren't. People say that like we're not part of it, but of course we are. Mm-hmm. Well, if if a person wanted to uh, learn more about your work, I know I had I had mentioned to you that I really have only been exposed to a sliver of your work. Uh, the people who are listening to this podcast that that uh, you know have a particular interest in the spiritual path is is there one of your books that you would recommend over others or do you think that that all would be a good entry point well i there are poems in all of my books that i like more than others and um the i have a book that is a my collected as of 2001 it was all the poems and all of my books published up till that time and uh, I have published oh I don't know maybe five since then uh, that are not in that included in that book then I have a that book is called Song of the World Becoming and uh, I don't know how many copies of that are left uh, somebody said there were copies on Amazon but it's a hardcover book, and it's a fairly large book. Then there is a um, another book that is called Firekeeper. It's one book, I mean one word, Firekeeper. And it was published in, well, I forgot when they, what year it was published. I think 2005 or something like that. Yeah, 2005. And uh, it's... Uh, selected poems up until 2005 selected poems from all of my books not the whole books but selected poems from each book up through 2005 and that would mean the last two books do not have any po poems from them in this book but that's a pretty good selection and it's a paperback and it's it's fairly small because, not small, uh, too small, but it was uh, 
they published this because people could carry it in a backpack easily. Mm. And that's what that's the kind of a book that they wanted to do. So I had a firekeeper published earlier than this that didn't cover as many books and it was a larger book. So this is it this is called Firekeeper Selected Poems Revised and Expanded because we revised the older Firekeeper and took some of the poems out of that and in order to get in the newer books. Mm-hmm. So those two, those two, if they want a select a selection, Firekeeper is best. And uh, there are other books. Um, I think uh, my book just prior to this new one, it's called Hol- uh, Holy Heathen Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. I I think it's maybe is simpler if they just want a little bit, you know. This this firekeeper has got a lot of poems in it, and uh, that book I that uh, book Holy Heathen Rhapsody may be simpler to begin with. Good, well, thank you. And do you have a website at all? No, I wish I did. I did have one. That's one. Uh, fault of mine, weakness actually, is that uh, I haven't done enough really to promote my books. I did a lot of readings when through the 90s, but mm-hmm. I don't know, you you know, you let up on that and it you just, it's kind of like swimming upstream, you stop swimming, you're right back where you started and so... Anyway. I understand. I, I, you know, I have done uh, bits of marketing for various, various endeavors, and yes, as soon as you stop applying the energy, it just evaporates. You know, I don't want. I'm not. I want the work to be known. I don't care myself uh, personally to be known. Right. But uh, I do want the work. I want it uh, considered. That's what I want. I want it to be considered. And uh, anyway, I've been luckier than I deserved, I think, given the kind of effort I put forth in that that area. So I thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. And I thank you for taking taking all this time. I appreciate you taking time out of your day for this. Well, I appreciate your doing it. I'm sure that... Uh, it's going to be a lot of work for you to put this all together, and I appreciate that, and thank you for it. 